Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Stroh. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Good afternoon, and thanks for tuning in. Today on Reproductive Left, we're going to discuss sex-positive feminism, a movement that began in the early 1980s that centers on the idea that sexual freedom is an essential component of women's freedom. Here with me is Arielle Greenberg. In 2011, Arielle left an associate professor position in the poetry program at Columbia College Chicago to move to Maine, and we're lucky to have her here. She's the author of numerous poetry collections and chapbooks that focus on women's experiences. Her most recent poetry collection is called Slice and was published by Coconut Books in 2015. Her most recent chapbook is called Shake Her, published by Ugly Duckling Press in 2012. Additionally, she was the poetry editor for the journal Black Clock. She serves as a contributing editor for the Spoon River Poetry Review. She was a founder and former co-editor of the journal Court Green, and is the founder and moderator of a Poet Moms Serve. Her poems and creative nonfiction have been published widely, and she is a contributing editor for the chapter on pregnancy loss for the 40th anniversary edition of Our Bodies, Ourselves. To learn more about Ariel, you can visit her website, arielgreenberg.net. In the interview, Arielle Greenberg talks with me about why she identifies as a sex-positive feminist and how that influences both her writing and her parenting. Enjoy. Hi, Arielle Greenberg. Thank you for being on Reproductive Love with me today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to start um, just by asking how uh, feminism or being a feminist influences your writing. Oh gosh, in every possible way. I would say that um, as a writer, I mean possibly as a human being, but certainly as a writer, uh, feminist probably comes at the very front of my list of identity markers. Um, I've always thought of myself as a feminist and um, more than anything else, I would say my writing is always um, through the, you know, comes through a woman's body. Uh, it's thinking about that. It, the images are often focused on that. Um, the politics are about that. All, all of it. So I want to talk about sex positive feminism. I've also heard it called pro sex feminism. Mm-hmm. And how did you start kind of identifying with that lens of feminism? 
Yeah, it's a really great question. I um, came of age in the 80s and early 90s. I was in college in the early 90s. And um, so that period of time was, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a big moment for feminism. Um, Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon's work was very uh, well known in academic circles, at least, mm-hmm. um, as well as in the popular imagination. And um so I was taking gender studies classes and, you know, thinking about that kind of stuff. And that was the prevailing uh, mode of feminism of the day. So it was a pretty sex negative <laughs> feminism. Um, I grew up, you know, so also in the 80s, I would say, you know, one of the first things that uh, happened for me as a feminist was I uh, was in the bathroom of my high school and I saw graffiti on the bathroom wall that said, sex is violence. And it was a quote from a Jane's Addiction song, which was a band I liked actually. Um, But I was very curious about that. I thought like, what could that possibly mean? And um, and it was written, it turns out it was written by a, a girl. I didn't really know her well, but I knew of her and she was this cool kind of punk rock girl. And I thought like, oh, you know, is that, is that what it means to be kind of a radical young woman, a feminist, to think that sex is equal to violence? And I knew that I didn't believe that for myself. Um, I was raised in a pretty sex-positive household. My parents were, uh, you know, really um, uninhibited about their bodies in a, in a good, healthy way. And we were taught to not have any shame about our bodies or about mm. pleasure, Um, My parents were physically affectionate with one another and, um, you know, it was a household in which uh, it was okay and healthy to be, to have sexual desire, to have a body, to um, express pleasure through that. So I already knew that I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't on board with the idea that sex equaled violence. Um, I really believed that sex could equal love or pleasure or uh, recreation or just healthy expression of, mm-hmm. you know, a human appetite. So that was really confusing for me. And um, in the early 90s, in college, I started a zine and it was the um, moment of Riot Girl and I was a Riot Girl and I had a Riot Girl zine. And so I was trading zines with girls all across the country and so many of them had a pretty... Um, I don't know, you know, I would say, I guess, in some ways, a sex negative approach in that they were um, kind of wary of and, you know, suspect of all, all sex, at least all heterosexual sex, Mm -hmm. sex, Um, and, you know, for many good reasons, like this, the part of Riot Girl was really about attacking the rape culture. This was also the moment when Take Back the Night rallies were really coming into play and all this stuff. So the, again, the prevailing, um idea around sexuality and young college age women was that it was, you know, rape, like all sex, most sex was rape, just by virtue of the fact that like, that was such a hot button issue and and something that really needed to be addressed. I mean, obviously, Um, but it kind of uh, covered everything, you know. Um, So as a riot girl, when I would get these zines that were really kind of uh, anti- sexual pleasure or anti, um, sexual relationships, I didn't really know what to do with that because that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And similarly, I was, um, pretty pro pornography and pro sex worker, at least in theory. I mean, I wasn't like an avid consumer of porn. (laughs) I'm still not. Um, 
nor had I had any experience in sex work, but I knew that it seemed important to me that there, that those, you know, those things weren't going to go away. That pornography is always going to be with us. Sex work is always going to be with us and that there ought to be, um, healthy ways to have those industries, um, ways that empower, you know, um, women that pay women a fair wage where women feel safe, all of those things. I was already aware of that. I knew about, um, a strip club, called Lusty Lady that was a workers collective and women run and that seemed like an amazing thing to me. I kind of wished I could work there. Um, so I love the idea that, um, or it was very important to me that there were ways that women could, for example, you know, make or be in pornography or in sex work or um, that that were healthy, uh, you know, positive outlets for them. Um, and so for all of those reasons, when I started doing my Riot Girl zine, I took that stance. I took a pro-pornography, <laughs> pro-sex stance, and I wrote essays about how I grew up reading Playboy and really loved it and felt like it actually helped me become a feminist, that I thought of the women in that magazine as being really powerful and strong and interesting women, and um, that I... Uh, you know, that I, I wrote an essay about how I was proud that my boyfriend had a good attitude towards menstruation and that we had sex mm. while I was on my period and that that seemed like a feminist thing to me, um, that I brought my boyfriend with me to Planned Parenthood so we could get figure out our birth control situation together and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And that was quite in uh, opposition, I would say, to a lot of the zines that were out there. It does seem like the third wave and even now with there's considered a fourth wave of feminism happening that um, th there is more sex positivity in it. Um, do you think there still should, it's important to still have a distinction that there's sex positive feminism versus just general feminism? Or is it more, that's what feminism is about now? Um, I think it is still important that there's a distinction because although sex positivity has been a hallmark of some of the third wave and fourth wave, I don't think it's true across the board. And I'm seeing a lot of, um, there's a lot of call out culture that's happening right now. And a lot of that I feel is kind of hearkening back to the sex negative culture of the eighties and nineties, just kind of a lot of finger pointing and, um, and, uh, you know, kind of like guilty until proven innocent mm -hmm. for heterosexual cisgendered men. Um, so I, I'm seeing that that is still in play among younger uh, people. Um, so, and I would say that overall our culture is still, you know, rab rabidly sex negative. So I think we have to take that stance just not just in response to feminism, but in response to the culture as a whole. Mm. Well, I see this a lot in the work that I do around um, reproductive rights and the the mainstream movement often talking about birth control and talking about all the other benefits of birth control and saying women need this to help regulate their cycles, da 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 da, da the health reasons, which are valid and really important. I don't want to say that's not. But also 
where's the message, you know, loud and clear that it's like women need birth control so they can have sex. Like, yeah, for pleasure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you bring up a good point. I mean, I think another reason to uh, still call ourselves sex positive feminists is because uh, the way we educate young people around sex in this culture has very little to do with pleasure. It has everything to do with um safe, you know, disease with infection and with pregnancy and with um, avoiding assault or rape and with consent. And all of those are extremely important things. Absolutely. And you can't have pleasure without all of those things in place. But um, I think we're still missing a big part of the conversation. It seems very dangerous to raise like what that would mean to really talk about pleasure and the possibility of sex as a recreational uh, activity, healthy recreational activity. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. On the show today is feminist poet Arielle Greenberg, and we're discussing sex-positive feminism. So um, you were just also talking about educating our youth, and you have two children. How does your... Um, perspective on feminism and sex positivity influence the way that you raise them? Um, I would say that at the moment, they're they're 10 and 6 right now, and so they're not, uh, they have not vocalized an interest in uh, knowing more about sexuality per se yet, and so part of it is waiting till they're ready to have that conversation, um, letting their interests and um you know, kind of readiness uh, guide that conversation and when that conversation happens and begins. I mean, the conversation has already begun. I think one thing that I've uh, heard and learned is that um, this needs to be, it's not one conversation. You don't have one conversation with your kids about the birds and the bees. You have an ongoing, lifelong dialogue that remains open. Um, So I hope that some of the things we've already started talking about, which include like just naming our genitalia with their correct names, and, um, you know, both my children know that their genitalia is their own and that they, it's a place for pleasure. Um, they both, you know, hold on to or <laughs> masturbate in the way that children do. Um, and, you know, it's like I will often say to my son, you know, do you have to go to the bathroom? Because he's like, has his hands down his pants and he'll say, no, I just like holding my penis. And I'll say, you know, because it feels good or whatever. And I'll say, yeah, great. <laughs> totally understand that. Um, or, you know, same, similar with my daughter. We, she's 10, and we just sort of had a conversation about, she was looking at her, at her vulva and sort of saying, like, th- calling her clitoris her vagina, and so I gave her a little anatomy lesson. Um, so, you know, just holistically, as it comes up and feels natural and easy and doesn't make a big deal out of it, just like, oh, do you know that you know, that part of your vagina is your labia? And she's like, great. You know, and we don't have to have a big conversation about that. She can just store that information and keep it for later when she (laughs) needs it. Um, But I would say, you know, the thing I feel like I have done a really good job with so far is just they have no um, body shame. They don't, I don't think they even know why anybody would. Mm. Um, So there's still kids who are glad to run around the house naked or, you know, they take a bath together and it's completely innocent and they just don't know why you know so they're both of them also will be glad to sort of like change on the beach and have to be told oh you know we're supposed to go to the dressing room for that and they'll kind of be like why um because they don't 
they don't think that there's anything wrong with having bodies, which there isn't. Um, so that's all we're doing in the in the sense of sex positivity right now, because it's all that's appropriate for their age. But I'm definitely doing a lot of research and thinking about the ways to, um, especially with my daughter, certainly like educate her to be self-protective and aware and um, smart uh, and responsible but not fearful. I don't want her to walk into the world just thinking mm-hmm. sex is something to be terrified of um, or that, you know, the only option is that she's going to be raped. I don't want her to feel that. Um, and, you know, obviously also with my son, I want him to feel like there are ways to have uh, consensual, pleasurable sex with somebody else that feels good for both of them. Um and that that there that's a different thing, you know, than something that feels that's more about power or violence. So those conversations will come later. Yeah. So I told you before, but I was listening to Betty Dodson on my drive down to just kind of get in the mindset for this interview, and um, and one of the things she was saying um, was that it's really pretty much impossible for people to be raised in our culture without having some sort of Um, baggage around sexuality, Um, just some things that we have to move on. And I think that that's probably pretty scary to think about as a parent, like wanting to do the best job you can, Mm -hmm. but you're, you can't control the culture that surrounds. It's true. But I would say I was raised pretty much without sexual baggage. I really do um, credit my upbringing a lot. Although, you know, some of it's my upbringing, some of it's me, and some of it's sheer luck. So I have two sisters, both of whom, you know, faced more uh, difficult situations around this than I did. I, you know, somehow managed to, I, I often say this, like part of what fuels my sex positive feminism is that I was able to arrive at adulthood having had no traumatic sexual experiences and I know that I'm in the vast minority and I know that a lot of that's just luck you know um but I will say that I do think my parents raised us to feel like sex was a healthy normal part Mm -hmm. of life and that our bodies were nothing to be ashamed of and that masturbation was okay and um my mother had you know our bodies ourselves around the house and she had uh Betty Dodson you know books like that and so you know, it was certainly part of the discourse in which I was raised. Um, and I'll say with my own kids, yes, on the one hand, it's sort of an uphill battle. Um, you have to stay vigilant about that stuff. And, you know, one thing I've done is gone and spoken to the teachers at school who do the sex education program and, you know, sort of health programs and just made sure, luckily, again, like everybody has been really on board so far, but just made sure that she's not going to get a message of fear and self-loathing or shame. Um, my, you know, my daughter won't receive that message in school. Um, and yeah, so far, I mean, we've kind of kept them in a bubble by luckily living in this really progressive community and this <laughs> wonderful state um, where people are very open-minded and where things are pretty safe and they can, you know, kind of run free. Um, and... Uh, also really limiting and being uh, critical consumers of the media that we take into the house. My kids don't watch TV. They don't really watch movies. Um, they The few shows that we get, we monitor really closely and um, think about what they're you know saying and offering. And my daughter subscribes to New Moon, which is a wonderful feminist pub- publication for young women, for young girls. Um, 
And in New Moon, she's sort of getting like constantly bombarded actually with like an anti uh, sexualization of girls, you know, message. So much so that she's kind of like a little tired of it. She's like, ah, <laughs> oh, New Moon with the like anti pink stuff. Fine, I get it already. Um, but she does definitely understand what that means. And so if we go to a toy store, for example, if we go to a store and she sees, um, you know, those like water guns marketed for girls next to the water guns marketed for boys and the water guns for girls are pink, she'll be like, look, mama a pink water gun for girls like how (laughs) stupid is that like what's that about um so she definitely has that message in her head and I think we try to really uh yeah just be on top of all that stuff and again some of that's luck she's a kid who was never interested in dolls particularly so she doesn't have Barbies she doesn't have anything like that she's not interested in princesses Mm. um so uh yeah, you know, she reads a lot of books with female protagonists who are strong and smart and independent, and all of that helps, too. <laughs> That's awesome. Already critically thinking. I love that she's thinking critically about gender, but then also, like, okay, it's enough criticizing pink. Yes. Like, there's, like, this balance, right? <laughs> yeah, and she says, you know, I don't really like pink, but I do like purple, and I know that's a stereotype, too, but I like it. It is my favorite color. <laughs> so, and that's her yes, right. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, as a girl, I my mother tried to dress me in, um, you know, overalls and, like, this very gender-neutral kind of clothing in the 70s, um, as was done at the time, you know, mm-hmm. by second-wave feminists, and all I wanted was, like, a taffeta dress and patent leather Mary Jane shoes and frilly things and my hair and ponytails and um and it wasn't for very many years until I came to the idea of femme identity (laughs) that I started to really make sense of all of that for myself um that was hard I mean that was kind of the hardest thing for me in a way as a sex positive feminist was to reconcile my genuine interest in um feminine markers of femininity Mm -hmm. uh with my rampant feminism, (laughs) Um, I kind of felt, again, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, like there wasn't a place for that. You know, how could you be a feminist and really want to wear big earrings or, you know, get your nails done or whatever? And um, I'm, yeah, I'm really grateful to femme queer identity as giving me a way to think about the conscious performing of feminine markers Mm -hmm. as a choice. Yeah, I think I can relate to that a little bit of needing to totally push away from it because I felt so oppressed by needing to look a certain way when I was younger to then be able to come back to it and balance what I what I'm choosing and what what I felt forced into. Yes, absolutely. Oh yeah, and I didn't come to it till I was in my 30s, so you're ahead of the game. (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost there. Um, so one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was, so in your writing, do you feel like, um, because you're so sex positive, um, body positive, does that, um, have any negative repercussions for you? As a writer? Yeah. Um, again, luckily, no, not, I mean, not in the field so far, um, you know, I'm fortunate that I have a chosen field, which is poetry, which is known for being kind of a hotbed of radical activity and weirdos. So there's not a whole lot you can say in a poem in this day and age that's so shocking um, or upsetting to poets. You know, there's always kind of a joke of like, oh, did you hear there's a Republican poet 
somewhere in the country, <laughs> one of them. <laughs> yeah. So it's a pretty it's a pretty liberal and progressive kind of community. Um, but you know, I no. So no, the answer is no. But I would say it's very gratifying to me when I read my poems to an audience. I don't expect will be so on board. You know, I'm hoping they won't be horrified, but I'm a little worried. You know, I'm standing in front of a room full of people. So this happened with a room. I was on a panel of um, mothers. It was a, like a panel on poetry and motherhood. And um, so the room was mostly kind of older women, you know, grandmothers and, you know, younger women with babies in arms, like nursing their babies right in the room. And um, I read these very sex positive poems about pleasure and, you know, being a mother and, and, and also being a sexual being at the same time, which is shocking information for some people <laughs> in the culture. Absolutely. Um, but it wasn't shocking to this group of women who were themselves mothers because they know that, in fact, yes, they are sexual beings and mothers. And so um, I was nervous about reading those poems, to them, but <coughs> excuse me, afterwards, uh, a number of people came up to me and said how wonderful it was to hear those poems how they don't hear poems about both of those things happen you know being part of the same existence and identity um and what a relief it was to hear somebody read poems like that so that was really gratifying that's awesome um so actually we do need to wrap up because we need to move into our ask maple segment where we answer sexual and reproductive health questions with our nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. Um, do you have any of those poems here or that you'd be interested in reading? Um, yeah, let me, let me go find one. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. We are about to move into our Ask Mabel segment, but first, Arielle Greenberg is going to read us one of her poems. This is called A Brief Memo on Impossibility. I am not trying to ignore rape. I am not ignoring rape, specific or writ large. I am trying, though, to turn my eye toward joy, turning my heart to bliss, turning my fist toward possibility, toward your G-spot. I am being a feminist in the misogyny, I'm being femme in the male gaze. As the poet Myung Mi Kim says, the non-viable has its own charge. Welcome to Ask Mabel. Here with me, as always, is nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier, ready to answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, please email me at educate at mabelwadsworth.org. The first question, does long-term use of contraceptives affect future fertility? Hi, Abby. Um, I'm anxious to answer this question because I think there's a lot of confusion uh, around this issue. If a woman's menstrual cycles are reasonably regular before she starts um, contraception, then when she finishes the contraception, her cycles should pretty much return to the way they were prior to the use of that contraception. Um, but the 
amount of time involved before the return to regular cycles will vary depending on what that contraceptive method was. For example, the use of oral contraceptives, even for an extended period of time, should not disrupt future fertility. It may take a period of three to six months after the oral contraceptive is discontinued before cycles regulate, but once they do, then fertility would be at its normal level for a regularly menstruating woman, which is about 15% chance of conception um, each cycle with unprotected intercourse. Uh, for the Paragard IUD, which is the IUD that does not contain any hormones, um, there would be no interference after the removal of that IUD with fertility because it does not impact the woman's menstrual cycle. There are no hormones involved. For our other long-acting reversible contraceptive methods, which include the Depo-Provera shot, uh, the Nexplanon insert, and the Mirena and Skyla IUDs, um, upon discontinuing those methods, it might be um, up to one year before the menstrual cycle does regulate. So therefore, until that occurs, uh, fertility would be compromised for that period of time. This next question actually is something that we get asked a lot. Um, and this is about if a woman has multiple abortions, does that decrease the likelihood of her one day being able to carry a pregnancy to term? I'm really glad to answer this question. The simple answer is no. Abortion is a very safe procedure. There's less than a 1% risk of problems post-abortion, uh, including um, problems regarding future fertility, no matter the number of abortion uh, procedures that a woman um, were to obtain in her lifetime. Uh, it does not impact her future fertility unless there is an unusual complication uh, like infection which might cause um, scarring uh, in, in the uterus. Uh, and again, those risks are less than 1%. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for taking the time to answer our questions. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. If you want to hear more, you can find us on SoundCloud and subscribe to Reproductive Left on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. I'm Abby Strout. Tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30 p.m. right here on Community Radio WERU 89.9 Blue Hill. 99.9 Bangor or online at weru.org.